I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Like to Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully, and welcome back. This is the first show of 2023. Thank you to everybody who listened to our countdown of the best movies of 2022. And also thank you to Cozy Rye for joining me for that countdown. This is the last movie movie episode where I'm coming at you as a solo host. So the next episode is going to have the new co-host, Steven Richards from the Hot Property Podcast, he'll be joining me. So if you only like the episodes with just me, you are shit out of luck. But if you miss the episodes where I had a co-host and you don't like listening to my grumbly voice scraggling off and off over and over, well, then I got good news for you. It won't be like this anymore. But I have even better news for you. Today, I'm going to be interviewing writers, actors, filmmakers, Ed Hartland, and Connor Baru, the uh, co-writers, star, uh, Ed is the, uh, you know, let's let's do it this way. Here we go. Connor Baru is the writer and director of the film. Ed Hartland is the writer and star of the film, When the Screaming Starts. Uh, it's a movie that I would highly recommend to just about anybody. It is a mockumentary horror comedy. It's available on Screenbox TV. It's available on Amazon. Basically, anywhere where you stream movies, uh, you can get this, and I highly recommend that you do. Uh, I watched this on my iPad at the gym. Not the most ideal place to watch a movie, but it is a great place to stand on an elliptical with headphones on and laugh out loud at the movie you're watching while everyone else in the gym is like, who's this fucking guy? Well, that fucking guy was me. So you should... Uh, you should definitely check it out and then hit me up at movie movie cast on all of the things as well as movie movie cast at gmail.com and uh, let me know what you think of it and I will uh, send your kind words to the filmmakers. So uh, I was about to say without further ado, but there is a little more ado. Uh, I am still learning some cool tech with this and I recorded this on a new format because as we've previously established, fuck Zoom for dangling the carrot of unending messages and then, oh, they want to get paid. Now, I know everybody wants to get paid and they deserve to get paid, but uh, I don't want to pay them. I don't like to pay for things. I like free things. So I recorded this over clean feed. Um, still working out some kinks. Towards the end of the episode, there's a little bit of crosstalk, but um, it's rather humorous and hopefully not too intrusive. But um, apologies for that in advance. And now, without further ado, enjoy my interview with Connor Baru and Ed Hartland of When the Screaming Starts. It's a little bit behind the mask, a little bit man bites dog, and a little bit best in show. It's When the Screaming Starts, now available on Screambox TV. And joining me today to talk about it are writer-director Connor Baru, as well as writer and star Ed Hartland. Gentlemen, welcome to I Like to Movie Movie. Thank you for having us on the show. 
Oh, of course. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. thanks for doing it. So I gotta say off the bat, love the movie. Uh, really funny. I think that uh, it hits the comedy elements really strong. It hits the horror elements really strong, and I think that just top to bottom, it's such a clever little piece of material, and it's so enjoyable that I th- I would feel comfortable recommending it to everybody. Well, that means a lot, Dan. We're we're British, you know, so we uh, we don't take compliments very well. But thank you very much. <laughs> well, you're very welcome, and I I would say at least as far as my experience with British humor is that there's a certain dryness to it that um, we here on this side of the pond often have a difficult time trying to capture. And uh, that's one of my favorite things about this movie. There is a dryness to the humor where I, I was uh, I watched the first half of it while I was on an elliptical machine at the gym, and I was the guy at the gym that appeared to be laughing at nothing at all while I was running. <laughs> I like it. You're making some gains whilst watching some films. Yeah, you know. Making, making the most of your time. <laughs> Um, I have to say, though, Dan, just on that note about the whole like Americans not getting the dry British humor, I really have not found that to be the case with this film. Um, we've we've played at some American festivals and it, and the American audience seems to love it, even maybe more so than, than the Brits, which has been surprising because we've always heard that as well. You know, they won't get certain types of humor, it won't translate very well. But yeah, at least from our experience, that hasn't been the case. Right on. Well, I mean more in terms of not necessarily getting it, but being able to do it. Right, okay. Yeah, we have somewhat of a difficulty with that. Or, you know, I'm probably broadly generalizing, but uh, really it is on brand with, as I understand, British humor to often be. And, uh, you know, it's just really funny top to bottom. So I have to ask, though, in, in doing this movie, why did you guys land on, you know, comedy? horror as well as the faux documentary format when you're writing how do you come to that as your as your goal i think Ed, you're pretty best suited for that question yeah yeah i was just just thinking that you know it's kind of putting all of those bits and pieces together i think there wasn't like one moment where we went we're going to make uh mockumentary that's comedic and about a serial killer it all kind of developed as we were talking about stuff um the initial idea for it came when i was uh, reviewing the ted bundy tapes for the london horror society and um kind of watching it and finding myself kind of equally fascinated and disgusted by what i was watching and kind of asking well what did that say about me that i was really interested in this uh, what does it say about society that this was such a uh, such a watched miniseries that you know everyone was talking about it when it came out and you know i took that kind of idea to to connor and we just started kind of developing it and it all kind of grew quite naturally i think i don't know if you agree with that connor yeah, for sure. I mean, Ed, Ed approached me with this original concept and and um, he'd essentially got a sort of loose first draft together and it just hooked me in straight away. I was just, I just thought it was a, such a fun concept. Um, the, the scope of the story, there were some really great characters. Lots of them did change. We added lots of characters. We changed so much over the over a period of, I don't know what it was, Ed, six months or so, but I think it, that was key, just the initial concept I just thought was so fun and the characters that Ed had sort of envisioned at the very beginning. And we just 
ran with the idea and didn't really look back and it just sort of evolved organically like Ed said. So now I'm a big fan of true crime and that's something that I've always tried to reconcile while listening to true crime podcasts, watching true, you know, watching things like Ted Bundy tapes is I'm going, oh, this is entertainment. This is fun for me, but it is all standing on the shoulders of actual real world suffering. And so I wondered, are either of you fans of true crime? You know, it seems that you are sort of dancing with that idea here. Um, it, has that informed this at all? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think Ed is, again, best <laughs> on this question. Well, I mean, I, I remember, like, reading true crime stories from magazines when I was way, way too young to be reading them. Um, and, you know, me and my sister, I mean, she went on to become a doctor and I co-wrote a horror comedy. So, you know... We, being a fan of true crime can lead to many different career paths. <laughs> yeah. so, you you um, made the smart choice. But... <laughs> oh, I definitely, yeah, yeah. It's just rolling in the money. Um, um, yeah, I'm. I've got an interest in true crime, but it's it's always that, like you say, it's that weird balance that you have where you find it fascinating, you are entertained by this, and yet it's it's horrific, it's awful stuff that's that we're kind of reading about and we're watching and that was a conversation you know Connor and myself have been having since we first started working on the script all the way through writing it all the way through uh, shooting and in post-production it's been a kind of ongoing discussion about you know how we toe that line um, between the, the kind of comedy and the darker side of things. Well I really like the way that it is portrayed through the in-film filmmaker um, I love that his ego is tied to, I don't even care that I'm about to potentially film some murders. This is going to put me on the map. This is going to be the film that makes me a legend. And I, I feel like in, in creating and consuming true crime material, you always have to kind of shut that guy up. That's the guy that, that you don't want to be. Yeah, I mean, no one wants to be Norman Graysmith, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. No yeah. offense to, to Jared Rogers, who, who played him and was also one of the producers on, on the film. <laughs> but um, moving on swiftly, uh, you know, I think what I really latched onto as well from a directing point of view was not just this true crime stuff, which obviously we were massively influenced and researched. And I got lots and lots of info from Ed because he's a bit of an encyclopedia on, on this topic, at least compared to me. But sure. it was also just this idea of, ambition and and fame and like how that translates in 2023 you know the the lengths people are willing to go to in order to to be someone to be famous you know and what price they're willing to pay to to get to that point interesting yeah i guess that is tied into the way that that norman character is it is really you know look at me look at me look at me he wants to be the present documentarian as opposed to the off-screen documentarian yeah there's definitely there's definitely some ego there. And so, Ed, when you were writing this, did you envision yourself in the role that you ultimately played? Or did that just kind of fall into place? It's, it's a bit of a weird one because, I mean, personally, I don't like writing myself because it feels weird writing a line or writing a character and kind of going, yeah, I'm going to start acting that. Um, but the, the way that the, the film kind of started out, it you know it, very early on, 
if the idea of it was really just going to be a little short scene with myself and, and Jared Rogers, who plays Norman. Um, uh, so with that in mind, I kind of always knew I was going to be playing Aiden, unless Connor just suddenly turned around and, and fired me. Um, it crossed, it, it crossed uh, my mind on multiple occasions. I mean, you mentioned it. You mentioned it once for advice. It was kind of the way you greeted me on set was today you're not getting fired. Disdain. Um, <laughs> you got one more day. You got to prove yourself. This is it. Yeah, you got to really, you no. gotta work. You got to earn your your stripes here. No lunch um, for you today. No, Go sit in the corner. You had to, you had to kind of just forget that you were. You know that I had to forget that I was going to be acting it because I think that would have just held us back when we were writing. So it was kind of forget about it until we turned up on set, and then yeah, had to actually. And so, form these lines. How much of because this is such a great ensemble? I think everybody really plays well together, and I can only imagine, and I could be completely wrong. I can only imagine that a lot of the rapport that the cast shares comes from a level of improvisation on set um that's the vibe i get you know i referenced best in show in the intro you know you watch a christopher guest movie and it's understood that some of it is scripted and a lot of it is just letting the camera roll you know you watch curb your enthusiasm they let the camera roll on a concept run it a couple times and then cut it together and I I feel that same sort of freewheeling energy where everyone's playing off of one another while hitting, I'd imagine, certain scripted beats. Uh, was there a level of improv on this, or or am I just completely yeah. intuiting that? No, there was there was definitely a lot of improv throughout. Um, it I've been on this, quite a few podcasts talking about the film, and I think actually you sort of lose track of what actually happened and what you know what have I just misremembered here, but. In my mind, we actually did more improv than I think the reality of the situation was. Like, we definitely did improv, but a lot of the scenes were just fully scripted, and that was that. But we had these certain opportunities and these these moments. Um, for example, there's a party scene, and it just felt wrong to try and control that fully. I mean, we had our certain beats to hit, and we had our little jokes that we peppered through. But when you're in that situation with talented actors, it's best just to let them to let them fly, you know. Um, there were certain days we didn't have as much time because we're, you know, we're a low budget production. We're shooting like 10, 11, 12 pages a day sometimes. So sometimes we didn't have the complete freedom to, to improvise, but certainly any opportunity we could where we had a little bit more time, let these guys fly, you know, and they, uh, they brought out some fantastic moments from the improvisational process. Did you find these performers from comedy backgrounds, from acting backgrounds? You know, are they people that you knew? Uh, they have such a cohesive energy that that I it almost feels like everybody knew each other going into it. Yeah, we, we we've all known each other for quite a long time. The, well, the main team, myself, Ed, and Jared, um, we all went to art said and trained in the same year. It's a, it's a drama school in London. Uh, same with Yes and the Tour. Carving the coup, like the main family, a lot of them went to Art Said. So we're all longtime friends. We've been working together in a creative capacity for a long time, making short films and theatre shows. And a lot of those guys that you see in the family and the cast, they actually came on board as, as producers, executive producers and whatnot. So it really was a team effort and, and the wider cast as well. I mean, myself and Ed, we've just worked with so many great actors over the years as actors or as writers and producer directors. and 
we just sort of got everyone we knew in this film essentially and we had the sort of luxury of writing with people in mind as well which was really helpful like i said it definitely pays off everybody really does play well together i was uh just going through you know certain biographies and stuff i noticed that the actress that plays claire who i thought stole the movie um works in casting and i thought oh that that's so interesting to go from casting to being cast now i know she does seem to have a filmography here but uh without a doubt stole the movie for me oh yeah she she actually i have to say she's one of the few right ed that we didn't know beforehand we i think she's one of the few we actually auditioned and she just yeah she just blew us away and actually informed a lot of the character that you see like she's she was always quite macabre and had that sort of wednesday adam kind of vibe but the actress caitlin rennell just brought that to our audition and we just sort of played off that afterwards so yeah she was fantastic i found myself getting a lot of laughs when she wasn't necessarily the focal point of what was happening on screen but would be in the background or off to the side doing, saying something, expressing in some way. And there was plenty of big laughs just from that, where I was like, it looks like she's just kind of riffing and having fun. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it was like testament to Adrian Musto, the the cinematographer, DP, whatever he wants to be called. I lose track these days. Um, but like, he, he was so intuitive with the camera and like, obviously certain things were planned, but we had to give him a little bit of creative license to, to feel what was happening in the scene, especially when there were elements of, uh, you know, improv going on. And, you know, the, the camera almost becomes this character where it pans at the right moment, it, it punches in at the right moment and it just creates this extra sort of comedic beat. So this is your, this is a feature debut for you as a director, Connor, correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so like, can you talk about that process a little bit of trying to adhere to the faux documentary format? I, I didn't get a chance to see any of your shorts, but, you know, were any of those in this format or is this, you know, just kind of a new thing that you're playing with? No, this was completely new for me, uh, as far as I can remember. Uh, no, yeah, don't think I've ever made a mockumentary before. Um, we did do a teaser beforehand. Um when we were in the, in the process of getting the idea off the ground and raising finance, we created a, a very short teaser, um, which was very useful actually, just to get used to that sort of style of shoot. And we did a couple of test test shots and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it was challenging. It was challenging to get your head around because it can be quite limiting and you can take it very literally. And obviously we've had a lot of creative license in this film. Like if it was a real documentary, you know, sometimes, you know, the camera angles wouldn't make sense. You'd catch another camera guy in the shot. But I did a lot of research into that, actually. And, you know, even some of the the the, uh, the long-standing mockumentaries you mentioned, like Best in Show or What We Do in the Shadows, The Office, they all sort of break the rules because I don't feel that the format should stand in the way of this good story. Because, you know, ultimately it's, it is a joke, a lot of this film. Mm. Um, we're not taking it completely seriously. So... Yeah, it, it was it was tough to get used to, but once I sort of got into the groove, I, I found it really freeing. And actually, now moving forward, it's going to be quite tricky to <laughs> to have to abide by a whole new set of rules again, you know, because you can't just have those little asides to camera where the character can tell you exactly what they're what they're feeling, you know. And they, you're going to have to show it in a more, I guess, a more visual way. Well, there was there was a couple moments like I'm a pretty big found footage fan, so I'm always on the lookout for like oh is that adhering to the framing device is that adhering to the framing device 
And there was a yeah. couple moments where I was like, wait, I can't figure out where this cameraman is. And then mm. I, I had to kick myself. I was like, why am I doing this? The energy is here. You know, the rhythm to this comedic scene is here. And um, and I think you're correct. You know, if you end up adhering to that rule so much, you'd end up stepping on so many punchlines, stepping on so many performances. And so I was the asshole watching it and just being like, oh, I don't know where that camera is. I don't know where that is. And it's like, ultimately, like, why do I give a shit where this camera is? <laughs> I mean, I was the asshole behind the camera thinking it. And like, should we not do this? And it was a debate between, you know, between myself, Adrian, the, the DP, Ed and Jared, the producers, you know, it was something we were aware of. We knew we were breaking the rules. It wasn't like we just made some catastrophic mistake and got to the edit and thought, what have we done? Um, it, it was intentional. And yeah, we didn't want to hold ourselves back too much. Again, shooting 12 to 15 pages a day. Oh, yeah. Gotta move fast. Well, I think it comes down to it. Like I, I, my background, I did stand-up comedy for a very long time. And there's so many points where you're sitting down to write a joke or a bit and you realize like, Oh, you know, I'm actually straying from the truth of this bit. And it starts to feel like you're selling yourself out, straying away from the truth. But it's like, no, my job is not to purvey some deep truth onto the audience. I got to hit them with that energy. I have to hit them with that comedic rhythm and really nothing else matters at that point. And so like I said, I think you are correct. There's points where it's like, yeah, we could set up a camera here and explain where this cameraman is and, you know, have him wave at the camera. And it's like, why even waste the time? That's just going to make an inferior movie. And adding so much detail makes an inferior joke. It's It comes down to just the delivery system and the efficiency of it. And I think that when it comes to comedic efficiency and also the efficiency of, you know, when the horror eventually does hit in this movie... Um, it hits hard, and it's because of that efficiency. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't. Be I mean, if you're making Blair Witch or something, and the whole thing is built around this pure reality of the situation, um, I think you're rigid and stick to those rules and mm-hmm. commit one hundred percent. But again, tonally, this film, this genre, I felt like we had the freedom. At least that's what I tell myself to go to sleep at night. Oh, I think you can sleep soundly. And so, also the the horror elements of this, you know, the the main uh, centerpiece where the main section of actual carnage happens, um, the it's still interlaced with comedy, but it is extremely effective horror. It is, uh, it, I guess the term is, it's fucked up. Uh, it, it's a really upsetting scene in a lot of ways. And so I wonder if you can talk about the process of sort of creating that centerpiece of the 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 main slasher segment of the film. I don't want to say too many details. Yeah, Ed, you want to we, take this we, one? We always knew that, you know, we were making... Yeah, well, I was going to say, we were kind of we knew we were making a film about, you know, an aspiring serial killer, about people who want to be serial killers. So it kind of made sense to us that at some point, you know, things were going to have to get bloody. We were going to have to uh, kind of, we didn't want to ever, ever drift too far one way. So we didn't want to lose the comedy completely, but we always wanted to have that, that kind of reality, quote unquote, of the um, situation that we're dealing with, people who want to want to be serial killers. So it was there from the very start that we wanted this. We spent a long time, Kind of coming up with different uh, 
different versions of it and writing it and rewriting it and um yeah it was yeah one of the biggest i think it was the biggest days we had on set with kind of upwards of like 30 people this was you know pre-plague um so we could manage to have 30 people in a room <laughs> at one time um and yeah it's just was it it was a couple of days wasn't it connor that we filmed filmed it over I think we yeah we did we did all of it in one and then we came back and did like this little pickup of walking down the corridor and whatnot but yeah yeah it was uh certainly a very a very ambitious day uh, it was quite dialogue heavy the whole dinner scene and then leading into the carnage and you know we tried to use well we did use practical effects as well which um which are amazing and hundred percent we'll be trying to use them wherever possible but they do sometimes slow you down and i think ed and jared uh well no sorry ed wasn't on camera for that particular scene so he was walking around with a giant piece of cardboard just trying to catch fake blood to stop it going <laughs> over the walls um so it's those kind of things that you just don't see on screen but actually it's like yeah we got to, we can't actually just splatter this joint with with fake blood so yeah a little movie magic there the cardboard cardboard splatter block that's that's fantastic oh yeah yeah yeah, I'm uh, slowly working on a, a short splattery film, and I, I too am obsessed with the idea of, of using practical, you know, practical blood effects. And the the film, as I have imagined it, is really excessive, and it's starting to look like it's going to be easier to build a fake bathroom where this takes place than it is to soak a bathroom in fake blood and then clean it. Yeah, I mean, it... Yeah, we're yet to find that a fake stuff. blood that doesn't stain. Stays. Yeah, the good-looking stuff's gonna what, have mate, to stick. We um, because where we filmed this was um, was a nursing home, and uh, <laughs> the the flooring, the flooring that was down there, is designed to just you can clean anything off it. So fake blood comes off that no problem. Interesting. So my advice is film film slasher scenes in nursing homes. Until you realise you filmed before COVID, and then COVID hits, and oh, yeah, you need to do some pickups, and you realise you couldn't have filmed in a worse location on Earth because <laughs> there was no chance of us going back into an establishment full of very sick elderly people at that time. So yeah, that that was a yeah and the worst thing was it doesn't look like a nursing home it wasn't part of it it wasn't like a nursing home was central to the story it just happened because we would be in cheapskates and we got a really good location for very very reasonable rates <laughs> i.e free so yeah you know it came back to bite us but it was it was a good location and yes the blood didn't stay on the floor which is always a bonus so what do you do in a situation like that where you have to make a pickup and you can't access that location? Are you are you rigging another location to look like it? Do you write around that? You know, what's the troubleshoot there? What did we do, Ed? I think initially we we started rewriting the whole thing because we just had a couple of scenes that just weren't quite working um, at the very start or they were working, but we felt they could be a lot stronger. Just narrative, the narrative drive wasn't quite there with some of the characters. Um, and yeah, we started rewriting different, uh, different sections of the film. And like at one point, Aiden had this, we needed to get back into his bedroom as well, which was also shot in a nursing home. 
um, not near any of the residents. It was like on site of a nursing home as a separate house, but still very strict rules and, and rightly so we couldn't get back on. So we started planning to have Aiden had like a little man cave in like a little garage somewhere where a lot of the, the reshoots scenes were going to happen, for example. But luckily, luckily we just sort of, we waited it out. Obviously we didn't know how long it was going to be. We were getting the edit together, uh, you know, very talented editor. Alan Ray, who did so many jobs, he was there on, on set and he was like our multi-tool kind of Swiss army man. Um, and yeah, we got a whole cut together of the film during that time. And luckily by the time, you know, we, we really needed to go, things had eased up a little bit. Very different times, you know, masks, very, very minimal crew. And, you know, safety, of course, was paramount. But um, yeah, we got back in and managed to do a few little pickups and got out sharpish. Nice. I feel like that that is the... You know, my limited uh, uh, experience with direction, it it really is just problem solving. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. I think Ed will too. Uh, you know, I, I have to say props to to Ed and Jared because they, we, us three were the main producers. We received some reinforcement from Dom Lenoir during the shoot, but initially it was just us three. And, uh, you know, these guys were on camera. So they'd be like running around, problem solving, picking people up, getting food sorted, and then have to jump on camera and, and you know, deliver those performances. Um, I had the blessing of at least just worrying about the practical production side of things. I didn't have to get into character and think about anything like that. So, yeah, hats off to these guys for that juggling act. Right on. Looks like we lost Ed there, but... Um... <laughs> That's all right. This next question is is uh, towards you, Connor. I, t- <laughs> I told you we don't take compliments very well. He just, <laughs> he just got off the line. I'm afraid that I might have closed him out. Uh, whatever, he can click back in. Um, so there is one shot in the movie that captures what appears to be a wild fox on the roof of a building. And so I gotta know, was did that just happen, or did you plan for that fox to be there? No, fully CGI'd in a fox, you know, when when you have your vision, nothing should mess with it. So I just, you know, we spent about a quarter of our budget just CGI'ing in a fox to uh, to create that moment. Well, it's money well spent. I was I am, I am, I am, of, I am, of course, joking. Oh, oh, shit. Well, <laughs> you fooled me. Um, we, uh, we, uh, no, we just literally, we were like, I think I looked at the fox. Someone saw the fox. They called me over. I was like, oh, wow, a fox. I didn't even consider filming it and luckily adrian musto again dp just he's 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 um got a background in documentary filmmaking so he just like straight away jumped on it got the shot and it just it's those little moments that happen that just really add a bit of production value and you couldn't plan for them really i mean yeah we certainly didn't have the budget to wrangle any wild animals or cgi them in it was just like what was presented to us on the day Right on. Yeah, that that was a moment where I was like, this has got to be serendipitous. Uh, it just, it. Uh, I mean, I would have believed you if you said it was CGI. I did believe you when you said it. But, Some um, good CGI. It yeah, seems that. like uh, such a, a real moment that I thought, oh, wow, this is a, you know, did they actually, you know, would you wrangle a fox? You know, and uh, People do. People do. I mean, again, I can't stress how minimal our budget was, you know, for, for a feature film and you know, quite ambitious in its own way. Uh, so, yeah, we couldn't afford anything, let alone foxes. Well, it worked out. I love those little those little moments. Uh, you know, so often there's these 
these hugely powerful moments in a movie and then you talk to the filmmaker and they're like, yeah, it was an accident. And, eh, it just kind of fell in that way. And I, I love to see stuff like that. That to me is where, you know, real movie magic is. Comes yeah. in in the margins. 100%. So, um, before we is wrap... Ed back in? I, it looks like Ed is back in. Do we have you back, Ed? Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. Okay. I thought yeah. I asked the wrong yeah, questions. And you were like, out. fuck this, I'm out. Like I said, yeah, this I just, is a new I technology. got so angry. Oh yeah, <laughs> you sound irate. <laughs> I was uh, I was pleased to hear the uh, the mention of H.H. Uh, H. Holmes uh, gets brought up because H.H. H. Holmes has a connection to my hometown. Uh, my local grocery store used to be a jail, and it is the jail where H.H. H. Holmes was ultimately executed. No. Yeah, so it's wild. I feel like I, I, I would like to think that my grocery store is haunted. That's ma- Do you know what? Really, if any anywhere is. Yeah, right? That, Between... like, an, another another piece of trivia just like that. My roommates who I'm currently living with, they've just, um, they're moving out at the end of the month and they've just um, moved to Muswell Hill, I think they said. Somewhere near there anyway. Apparently they're living four doors down from where, was it Dennis Nilsson, Ed? Is that right? Muswell Hill kind of area. I was thinking Muswell Hill. Well, funny you should talk about Dennis Nielsen because I'm pretty sure that Adrian Adrian Musto, the um, cinematographer, I think his dad was a like a hairdresser Dennis barber Nielsen. type thing. I I think he might have cut Dennis Nielsen's hair. Either that, or I've just made up the most elaborate bit of false trivia ever. That's a pretty <laughs> incredible piece of trivia that I would like to believe. It's going on the IMDb page regardless. Yeah. It's going on the IMDb, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to log on to Wikipedia. Does, does your, your friend uh, who gives haircuts have a Wikipedia for his salon? Is this... <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. So, um, final question about the movie, and this is for you, Connor. What, um... You know, what? what is it that made you... I know you were an actor, producer. What made you decide, like, I, I want to direct a feature? Uh, well, I've, I've always been uh, a filmmaker and an actor sort of in tandem, really. I, I, I went to... I studied film before I actually studied to be an actor. So, I've, yeah, I've always been doing the two hand in hand. Um, I think, for the most part, we all have. Um so I've been making a lot of shorts and, and whatnot over the past like six, seven, eight years before the film, before the feature film, sorry. And we just never quite found the right script uh, just for you know budgetary reasons, a, a project that everyone sort of believed in and was willing to pour their time, effort and resources into. So really it was just waiting for the right moment to uh, to strike. And when again, when Ed came up with this this concept, it, it felt like the the one, you know, it was... We could shoot on a relatively low budget. The, the two leads were cast from the off, which was fantastic. And I knew they'd do a great job. And, and again, we had the network around us to, to bring it to life and the locations we could get for a reasonable price. So, yeah, part of it was practicality and also just falling in love with the idea. Right on. Right on. Well, I think that love shows through. Um, you can tell everybody involved in this production really cared about making a good product. I think that comes through in the comedic energy, in the filmmaking, in the horror. Um, I Like I said, this is a movie I would feel comfortable re- uh, recommending to anybody, even if they're not necessarily fans of the genre. Uh, it's just purely enjoyable. So wonderful work, gentlemen. Oh, thank you, Dan. It means a lot. 
Oh, of course. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share about the movie before we uh, wrap it up a little bit? Uh, you're allowed to. You're allowed to say no. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I was gonna. I was gonna give you the sort of like normally Dom. If Dom's on the the podcast, he'll be doing this sort of pitch at the end of where to watch yeah. it and whatnot. I think it's. Uh, yeah, it's on Screenbox, Amazon, the usual sort of platforms. So, yeah, check it out. So Leave us a review. It is available. Um, final question then. Uh, have you guys seen anything good lately you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Is this a horror-based show mostly, or is it just uh, film No, it can be anything. Just film in general. Anything at all you like. Hey, even a show, or maybe you read a good book. Just some sort of entertainment recommendation. I saw oh, St. Maud recently. Great. Oh, St. Maud uh, deeply yeah. upset me. That was a great movie. Yes, it was... It was horrific but brilliant and yeah scared the shit out of me oh yeah that's uh the the final final moments of that are really uh uh for lack of better term burned into my brain that's not going anywhere anytime that's soon it. it's a slow burn but then they get you at the end I won't, yes you know, oh no yeah spoilers, but... <laughs> ed you got any recommendations for us yeah yeah so i'm i'm gonna recommend uh two books that I've, I've just reviewed for for London Horror Society by a, a writer called Chuck Wendig. Um, so the first is uh, Wanderers, and then it's follow-up Wayward. And it's this amazing uh, pandemic horror that mixes... It's like The Stand by Stephen King if there was AI involved, and they're just phenomenal books. I really cannot recommend them enough. Right on. Yeah. Brilliant. Chuck Wendig, he, um, didn't he write a couple of, like, the Star Wars novels? I feel like yeah, his name yeah, is, is popping up in my brain. It might just be a Twitter. Point, yeah. Oh, right on. I'll definitely no, check no, those no, out. He, de- he definitely, definitely wrote some. Yeah. Right on. Uh, the Stand is an all-time favorite piece of just any type oh, of yeah. media for me, so that is a, a, a definitely a good, uh, a good recommendation. Right on. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. I won't take up any more of your time. Uh, once again, congratulations on the movie. Best of luck with the movie. And, uh, you know, stay in touch. If there's ever something that you want to promote, ever something you want to talk about, or if you ever just want to shoot the shit and talk movies, uh, I would be glad to record it. Um, but otherwise, you know, enjoy your enjoy your Friday night. Thank you so much. So there you go. A big thank you to Connor Baru and Ed Hartland for joining me on the show and giving such a great interview. And thank you to everybody who is listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that you check out When the Screaming Starts. It is available on Screenbox TV, Amazon, pretty much. Just look it up. Google it. Bing it. Web crawler it. Alta Vista it. Do whatever it is you got to do to get it, but definitely check it out and let me know what you think. As always, please like, subscribe, share, all things I like to movie movie. I am at movie movie cast on all things Twitter, Instagram, anchor.fm. Uh, we are available wherever podcasts are sold. And of course, check out everything I do at scullyvision.com. So thank you once again, everybody. Happy New Year. I hope that all your resolutions are in check and that you actually stick to them this time, you fucking loser. No, you're not a loser. You're a winner. You're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it together. 2023 is going to be the greatest year that man has ever seen. It's going to be what 2020 was supposed to be. 
before we got hit with a deadly virus. This is going to be that year. It's going to be that year for me. It's going to be that year for you, and you can kick it off in a great way with When the Screaming Starts. But thank you guys. Tune in again in two weeks where we will be onboarding my new co-host and uh, moving forward with I Like to Movie Movie. Thank you again. Happy New Year. I love you all. And um, what can I say to sign off? I'll sign off by saying this. Last night I saw Eddie Izzard do Charles Dickens' Great Expectations in a one-woman show up in New York, and it was uh, really fantastic, a lot of fun. Uh, definitely an honor to be uh, uh, in the same room as one of my heroes, and she did a wonderful job. So, uh, cake or death. Thank you very much. Peace out, y'all.